I'm Kathleen Goldhar, and I'm the host of a new podcast, Crime Story. Every week, we bring you a different crime, told by the storyteller who knows it best. You got one witness who can't be found. You got another witness who's murdered. We couldn't sugarcoat the story. I was getting calls from Cosby's attorney threatening to sue every day. Every crime in one way or another is a reflection of who we are as a people, as a city, as a country. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi. Before we begin, I just want to let you know that this episode contains descriptions of intimate partner violence. If you're experiencing intimate partner violence, or if you have a loved one who is, you can find information on where to turn for help at cbc.ca slash WTP resources. Please take care. Do you, are you, do you ever think about Pat now? Do you wonder where he is or anything? Do you ever no, no, he is out of my life and he's, he's gone, forgotten. That's my dad. I'm thinking of going back to find him and ask him to talk to me about what happened and ask him why. Do you think I should? I don't think it will help you at all. Why not? It's not worth it. Why will you do it, Ana Maria? To bring back memory, it was bad memories anyway. You know? Well, I think I want to know why he was like that. But what you're saying is you think it would hurt me. Oh, I don't think you will gain anything. That's my opinion. You asked me for my opinion. No, it's fair enough. I I think your opinion is valuable. You've lived a long life. My dad has me thinking, why am I wanting to get in touch with Pat? Part of me thinks he'd be open to talking. I actually got an email from a cousin of his once, suggesting as much. It read... Hello. I met you many moons ago. I am visiting Pat and spent about six hours with him yesterday. He told me that you are the only woman he has loved. I asked him whether you felt similar. He suspects you've long forgotten him in your success. His health is not good after two heart attacks. I am sending this without his knowledge as I believe if you love someone, you should let them know. The message included all of Pat's contact information. I printed it out, and every once in a while, I'd look at it, wondering what to do with it. That was ten years ago. I never did a thing. I couldn't bring myself to. Until now. I'm Anna Maria Tremonti. This is Welcome to Paradise. I think part of me has always known that if I was going to tell this story, I'd have to try to talk to Pat, hear him out. That's the journalist in me. Okay, now we're here. (laughs) And that's why I've shown up here at Atiyah Khan's door. 
Atia spent years as a counselor in the domestic abuse shelter system. She now consults on preventing that kind of violence. But she's also been through it. You know, I used to feel like everyone thought that I was weak. We talk about people who experience violence as if they're weak. But I'm just like, you have no idea how strong you have to be to be in that situation and just get through the day. When Atia was in her teens, she lived with her boyfriend, and he was extremely violent. Years later, she made a documentary about her experience. I didn't think you'd actually show up for that first conversation. In her film, she convinces her former boyfriend to confront what he did to her. It's called A Better Man. I couldn't believe you agreed to discuss the abuse you inflicted on me. It had been 20 years, and now I finally had a chance to get some answers. Women are always asked why we stayed, but I had questions for you. I wanted to know if the memories of violence stayed with you, if you felt as damaged as I did. Watching her film, I had so many of the exact same questions for Pat. I guess... When you mentioned you wanted to do this, if I'm going to be very honest, I felt a lot of things. Like I did feel the excitement because um, I think it's really important, right, for us to be able to share our stories. And at the same time, I don't think we figured out how to do this properly yet. I, I Yeah, you were excited for me, but right away I could sense that you are worried about me. I'm so, I'm worried about you because depending on what you're looking for um, from him and through the process, mm-hmm. you may not get it. And that like possibility of disappointment is just makes me very emotional because I, w- I want you to get what you need. And I, and I think you deserve that. What I'm realizing now is that now I feel a little bit afraid. Yeah. Like to go forward. Uh-huh. And I, I think um, part of me is also worried that my reaction to him, if he agrees to meet with me, um, what if I like him? It's totally okay if you do. I mean this with no judgment at all. Um, A lot of us love the people that harmed us. They can be loving and they can be funny and charming and all of these things. And sometimes they use violence. And so there's lots of parts and I think that it's really important that we acknowledge um, that people who use violence aren't just abusers. And I guess another point that I still am very uneasy talking about, just because when I say it, I can just feel the world yelling at me like, don't give this person space to have their voice heard. But I also think about, say, if you meet with your Uh, ex-partner so who is he now what is his life like now and who are the people around him do they know that he used violence against you is he still using violence is he not did he get help did he not get help I I think of this too I think about I mean there's an expectation that if you get an opportunity to talk to an ex-abuser you can like let him have it right that's the thing right like I feel like if I was to be like, Anna Maria, go for it. Screw him, uh, you know, like a revenge. Revenge is something that everyone seems a little more comfortable with. 
and which surprises me because why would I want to speak to him in the way that he spoke to me you know when we were in that relationship why would I want to treat him aggressively like that was one of the criticisms for me people thought that I let him off lightly and that I wasn't angry enough because I was like, that must have been hard to hear it was really hard because I made a film like clearly I was angry but also like there's so many other more emotions that I had and the reality is is that we're not going to end intimate partner violence until we start talking with people who have used violence was it do you feel it was the right thing to do do you has that like when you wake up in the morning are you in a better place because you did that um you know up until I met with the person who harmed me, I was having, you know, regular nightmares. Um, I would have a lot of anxiety. Uh, The moment I left my home, I was immediately on alert and couldn't relax. Like I couldn't walk down my street without kind of like my shoulders all up and just feeling like I don't know if I'm gonna be harmed. And so, The difference now is I leave my home and I am I don't leave thinking that someone might harm me like that's gone and that's huge for me so that I can walk through the streets and now you know I've picked up a camera and I'm taking pictures of flowers and I'm noticing things that I would never notice before because I was so afraid and I actually have not had any nightmares since I started sitting down with the person who had harmed me. And I think by me asking him questions, I just felt a weight off my shoulders. And so I think we can't underestimate the power of even just asking questions to someone that has harmed us, regardless of, the, of, of what they say. It's really encouraging for me to hear how much Atiyah's experience making her film helped her. But there's no guarantee things are going to go that way for me. Contacting Pat could turn out to be a really bad idea. These people are really difficult to get rid of. If you've managed to get rid of one, don't go back there, ever. I wanted to take a break to tell you about another CBC podcast I think you might like. It's called Cooper Island. Duncan McHugh goes deep into the lives of a few Indigenous children at one residential school. What they remember, what they tell him, it's going to break your heart. You'll cry. You'll get really angry. And then he goes looking for some accountability. And you'll want to hear that. He's amazing. Find Cooper Island on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't go back there. Don't give them any excuse for the whole thing to start rolling again. These people, they don't change. This is Jane Monkton-Smith, and she thinks reaching out to Pat is a risk I should avoid. He will be the same person now he was then. When I was in my early 20s living with Pat, I sent the police away from our door. 
When Jane Monkton Smith was in her early 20s in Britain, she was the police, a rookie cop being sent away by women like me. My sergeant said to me at the very first domestic abuse call I went to, I asked him, why won't this young woman get in the ambulance and accept some medical help for the injuries that she had? I couldn't understand why she wouldn't do that. Um, And he said to me, you know, well, you better get used to it, Jane, because this is what they're like. And he was basically saying to me, they behave differently, they make different decisions, we don't understand them, who knows what's going on there. So I started to think, well, perhaps these women are different to me. But of course, the more you see, think these women aren't making different decisions to me. I'd have made exactly the same decision in her position. Jane's not a cop anymore. She's a forensic criminologist and a professor of public protection at the University of Gloucestershire. But what she saw back in the 80s as a police officer, back when women were called battered wives, was that these women weren't different. They were doing their best to survive a specific form of abuse. It would be decades before that abuse was recognized and given a name. Coercive control. It's a pattern of behavior that traps people in relationships. So the victim is subjugated to the desires, needs, demands of the person controlling them. You know, that we've got this idea that domestic abuse is the result of the dynamic, unique dynamic between two people. Rubbish, absolute rubbish, because that perpetrator, when they leave that victim of domestic abuse, they'll behave exactly the same way with the next one and the next one and the next one and the next one. The victim is not bringing anything to this party. They could, in fact, be anyone. So my focus is on the behavior of perpetrators, not the behavior of victims. Jane's work connects the dots between coercive control and violence. In fact, she's written a book called In Control, in which she describes eight stages that, if left unchecked, can lead to murder. When I read it, my jaw dropped. And for the first time, I allowed myself to really absorb what could have happened to me in my marriage. Okay, so the first stage is what we call history. So that means the history of the perpetrator. History of domestic abuse, coercive control, stalking, violence, possessiveness and jealousy, all these things or some of these things will be in that person in the beginning. Stage two is kind of characterized by everything happening rather quickly. So moving in together quickly, maybe an early pregnancy, early declarations of love, that kind of thing. Jane describes this phase as a whirlwind which is exactly how Pat and I got married. The stage three is when that early relationship moves into being um, a committed relationship. So this is where we'll see, we'll see the, the classic domestic abuse, the classic coercive control coming in. There may be violence, there may be sexual abuse and financial abuse and all of these things. So this, now this stage, 
can last, we had some cases where it lasted about three weeks. We had some cases where it lasted nearly 60 years. So if they're not challenged, they will stay in that relationship and that victim will stay being abused or controlled for their entire life, maybe. Now, stage four is a trigger. The biggest one, by far, is separation or attempts at separation. That is a massive challenge to the control that this person has been exerting. Remember, they have been trapping this person in a relationship. All of a sudden, the person's getting away. So stage five, the perpetrator will try and get the relationship back on track. Begging or crying or violence or threats. Now, most perpetrators exit the timeline at this stage. But in stage five, we also see behaviors like stalking coming in and things like um, aggressive custody battles in the family courts, for example. If they move on to stage six, now we're getting into very high risk territory. The situation to them seems irretrievable. They're not going to get the control back or they feel so aggrieved they don't want the relationship back. It's not unusual for those feelings of rejection and revenge and anger and entitlement to think like, you know, I'm going to kill you, you deserve to die. This can be a very um, difficult stage to identify, especially for professionals, but victims will very often think something's changed. I'm not quite sure what it is, but something's changed. I think about Pat's threat to kill me and how he then wanted to get back together. Do I know what he was thinking? No. But what Jane has documented in the cases where the victim hasn't been able to get away makes my blood run cold. Because after stage six is stage seven. Making a plan to kill. Most people think that intimate partner homicides are crimes of passion. This is just a way we've described them, isn't it, for years and years and years. There's not an ounce of evidence to support that that's how they happen. Well over 80% of these cases have a level of planning in them. And of course, stage eight then is a homicide. positive thing is if we accept that this is a timeline that gives us an opportunity to intervene and save someone's life. Even if they escape murder, Jane says every week in the UK alone between four and ten women who have been victims of coercive control take their own lives. I am so unnerved by Jane's research. My marriage to Pat was a textbook case of coercive control. Back then, I just wasn't aware how much danger I was in. It's clear to me I can't just saunter back into his life. After doing my best to ignore what he's been up to for years, I need to learn everything I can about him. I always assumed he had moved on with his life and was doing well. But if I'm going to reach out to him safely, I have to find out.
there was one article from 2004, I believe, maybe 2005. Oh, yeah. Oh, and it's yes. about him like assaulting two RCMP officers. Really? Yeah. And it, here, I'm just pulling it up now. I'm talking with my associate producer, Sarah Melton. Yeah. Yeah. So it says man who attacked two RCMP officers and pepper sprayed one of them has been placed on probation for 18 months. What the fuck? I'll upload the document so you can see it. Huh. So the article suggests a struggle with mental health where police were called in. They try persuasion. Then they attempt an arrest. He resists. An officer uses pepper spray. Pat grabs it and sprays back and lunges for the other's gun. It sounds awful. It also sounds like stories I've covered where police get called in on mental health cases and it all goes sideways. Bruised ribs, pulled shoulder, neck, and various bite wounds. Jesus. Wow. Not known to be a violent man in the community. Huh. I could have told him he had a history of violence. But reading this makes me wonder, is he still violent? Is he in a relationship with anyone who may get hurt if I suddenly appear? Am I putting him at risk for self-harm? You know, I am just getting my head around the idea that he may have been violent to people other than just me. Mm. And so I read this and I think, hmm, trying to get his hand on the gun, being unable to remove it from the holster, what would he have done? Yeah. I don't know what to say to that. I wonder what his life has been like. I wonder if I can contact him. I don't take this lightly. But truthfully, on some level, I'm also thinking, what the fuck? I have to worry about not harming the guy who hurt me? I've prepped for lots of tough conversations before, but this is different. So I'm checking in with my therapist, Farzana. So what, what is happening for you emotionally around the reach out to Pat? Part of, a little tiny bit of me is afraid of what if he sees this as, as an opportunity to be extremely violent and mm -hmm. he wants to reach across a cafe table and stab me or shoot me. And, and like, that's never what he did before mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. with a weapon so um and i think that's really unlikely and I, I but but that's where my imagination goes and like why do i think like that what's wrong with well, me well you're you're bracing right like the body is kind of going get ready get ready get ready you know just in case yeah but have you thought about some of the emotional kinds of realizations that he might share like so you know the whole spectrum from denial, but also, yes, and I've had so much regret. Or, like, have, have you thought about how you'll feel? Not completely. I want to be open 
to what he says. Um, if he apologizes or if he says that, um, I will just listen, right? Um, mm -hmm. Maybe he needs my forgiveness. Um, don't know if I would give him that. Um, mm -hmm. I guess I have to think about that a little more. Yeah, and, and what are some of the other questions you're interested in? Because, you know, you'll probably get something that you're not 100% prepared for, because how could you be? So you might want to think about some of the different directions he might go in. And then what would be your follow-up question? Like, what, what do you want to know? I actually want to know when he told me that if I didn't leave, he would eventually kill me. What I really want to know is mm -hmm. what was it that made you say that to me? Did you really think you had the potential to kill me? And what was going through your head when you did those things? Like, why didn't you walk away? Why did you have to do that? Mm -hmm. And maybe he doesn't have an answer for that. Yeah. Um, so we'll see. Dear Pat, I hope I'm not shocking you by writing out of the blue. It has been a very long time since we've spoken. I'm writing because I'm hoping we can talk. I'm working on a memoir podcast. And what happened between the two of us in our marriage had a lot of influence on the way things unfolded since that time. I'd really like to hear your perspective on what that time was like for you and how you see things looking back today. Any chance we can meet? I rewrite this email over and over and then it sits in my drafts for ages till finally one morning I steal myself because I'm going to send it. And instead, when I open my inbox, there's an email for me. It's from Pat's sister. The subject line says, sad news. I read the message and call my friend Sue. Hello. Good morning. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you fine. How are you doing? Um, I'm okay. I just have some news for you. You're going to be shocked. Okay. I got a letter from Pat's sister. He's dead. What? Pat died. When? Uh, either Thursday or Friday of last week. Oh, my God. So um, she wrote this little note saying um, he was pet-sitting for them. And, and she said a friend went to the house and found him, and they believe it was a heart attack. Oh, my God. And then she wrote, um, she said, I just thought you should know, right? So I wrote back, you know, that uh, I thanked her for writing. I told her I was very sorry. Um, <clears throat> so then she wrote back, and she said, I'm going to read it to you. 
So wonderful to hear from you. We are getting some things together and we'll be leaving by Wednesday after they bring his ashes to us. Once we get to his house, we will know more about what we have to do to have a memorial for Pat. And she said, I'm thinking we can speak at his gravesite and then have everyone back to his house for a drink. But it's just interesting that she would reach out to me so quickly. That, that tells me something and that suggests to me she I'm would gonna, be open I'm for a conversation. Gonna I'm going to suggest to you that it would be very appropriate if, if you're available to, to do that. But memorials are all about talking about how nice people are, right? So how am I going to feel listening to that, knowing there is another side to this person? Well, you know, there's, there's a reconciliation you're going to have to make. I mean... <sighs> I don't know. I mean, you're never going to forgive him for what he did because it was it was a terrible thing. I don't know. Maybe coming to this memorial will maybe will it take some sting out of it? I think it will bring a, a not the kind of closure you had anticipated, but I think it will will soften that kind of chapter that's not been fully written. Yeah, true. It's, you know, it, it's shocking. I, I don't know. It's just timing is so bizarre. Well, and I'm like thinking, you know, if she tells me the memorial's next week, I think I'm going to go. Oh, come on down. Yeah, I might actually learn more from her than I would ever learn from him. I don't really have a choice anyway, but... Well, do you want to come down, drive down and go? Yeah, you'd want to come? I'll come with you, sure. On the final episode of Welcome to Paradise. He told me when the marriage ended, yeah. Pat was really upset and depressed for a long time. And he didn't even have another relationship. Okay. And he was always trying to find himself. And he said, I don't think he ever did. And then we started to talk and he said, you know, he got the money from the settlement for the abuse. And I said, the abuse from the church? And he said, yes. If you or someone you know is living with intimate partner violence, you're not alone. There are people who can help. For more information, visit cbc.ca slash WTP resources. The audio we used from A Better Man is courtesy of Intervention Productions and the National Film Board of Canada in association with TV Ontario. You can watch the full documentary at abettermanfilm.com. Jane Monckton-Smith's book is called In Control, Dangerous Relationships and How They End in Murder. Coercive control, by the way, is illegal in the UK, Ireland and France, as well as in a couple of U.S. states. In Canada, a private member's bill from the opposition New Democrats has got the government considering whether to put it in our criminal code. Welcome to Paradise is written and produced by me, Anna Maria Tremonti. Sarah Melton is our associate producer. Chris Oak is our story editor. Sound design and additional story editing by Mira Burt Wintonic. S.K. Robert is our coordinating producer. Our senior producer is Damon Fairless. 
and the director of CBC Podcasts is Arif Narani. Special thanks to Farzana Doctor. If you'd like to reach out to me directly, visit AnnaMariaTremonti.com. You can follow Welcome to Paradise on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please help others find it by rating and reviewing us. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.